Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. till den här podcasten på Patreon så hoppas jag att ni vaknar upp en dag och upptäcker att den klassiskt liberala västerländska demokratin är över. Just fan, det var förra veckan. För er som redan stöder mig på Patreon lovar jag att öppna en Facebookgrupp som heter Dekonstruktiv kritik där ni kan ansöka om medlemskap och så fort jag checkat av ert namn och bidrag på Patreon så släpper jag in dig. Där inne ska jag göra mitt bästa för att vara en admin och man får en mer direkt tillgång till mitt öra. Flera medlemmar har redan tillkommit. Om ni lyssnar så ska ni veta att jag ska komma på något att fråga er om. Jag vill inte ge dem som inte betalar för den här podden mer skuldkänsla än så. Men varje lyssning som inte stöttas på Patreon är en aktiv röst på att reklam ska styra allas våra liv. Jag vill börja med att tacka teknologerna på Linköpings universitet. Det var trevligt att få komma uppträda för er. Den här veckans samtal handlar om konst och humor. Ola Westfallen, professor på Kungliga konsthögskolan- eller Mejan som det också kallas, kommer förbi och samtalet som börjar en aning trevande utvecklas till svepande kritik av Sverige via den svenska konstvärlden. Eftersom Olav är tysk i samtalet på engelska. Men innan vi kommer dit ska jag också säga att jag är på Göteinstitutet i Stockholm torsdag den 17 november och deltar i ett panelsamtal med eventuellt framträdande om konst och humor. Samtalet är arrangerat av just Olav som använt mig som en del i sitt eget konstprojekt de senaste 3-4 åren och den här kvällen är som en avslutning på det projektet. Eller snarare en lansering av boken om det projektet. Om du bor i Halmstad 
så kommer jag dit fredagen den 18 november och är på Lilla Hjärtat med min föreställning Aron Flam på scen. Om du bor i Umeå så kommer jag dit den 25 och 26 november. Om du av en händelse befinner dig i Uppsala så är jag på Nubben den 1 december med inte bara Sandra Ilar utan ytterligare två cameos från Sämst. Man skulle kunna se det lite som en provföreställning inför vårens turné. Om du älskar att vara i Jönköping så kommer jag till Rio den 7 december och så är jag i Eskilstuna på Biograf Royal den 14 december. Biljetter till dessa event finns att köpa på Biletto eller Bietto. Jag är inte helt säker på hur det uttalas. Men om du söker Aron Flam på scen så kommer du utan tvivel att hitta rätt. Magnus Norell som gästade förra avsnittet har låtit hälsa att de två politiska partier av åtta som han bjudit in till en hearing om sekularitet har skjutit upp sin medverkan den 22 november. Magnus ber att få återkomma när och om han får svar. Jag vill också tacka för alla reaktioner jag fått in på förra veckans avsnitt. Jag vill börja med att tacka alla som var positiva till särskilt min inledning. Tack, jag var själv lite stolt och hade faktiskt tänkt fortsätta göra sådana här inledningar tills ni började ge mig komplimanger. Jag är inte bra på att ta komplimanger och bli paranoid så fort någon håller med mig och kände instinktivt att det är sista gången jag yttrar mig i någon fråga. Det är bättre att hålla käften och låta alla tro att du är en idiot än att öppna den och undanröja varje tvivel, som någon vis man brukade säga. Men ni har tur, för det var också flera som skrev att de önskade att jag kunde hålla käften och helst bara låta gästen tala. Och då kickade min omvända barnpsykologi in från andra hållet och jag tänkte omedelbart att jag måste ta mer plats och göra längre inledningar. Så tack till er kritiskt tänkande individer för att ni får mig att fortsätta. Ert hat är min näring. Vissa av er skrev kritik som jag vill besvara. Jag gör det utan att avslöja namn om ni inte uttryckligen skriver att ni vill att jag säger dem. Men då får det bli... I fortsättningen. Nu är det anonymt. Först till dig som skrev att jag skulle vara mycket bättre om jag inte med jämna mellanrum droppade svåra eller obskyra referenser som få känner till för att det uppfattas som elitistiskt. Du har givetvis rätt i det. Jag vet att det uppfattas som pretto. Men jag kan inte göra som du vill för jag är ju pretto och elitistisk. Du ber mig att inte vara jag. Hela min uppväxt har folk till mig att vara mig själv och så fort man är det så klagar de liksom go figure. Jag skämtar givetvis om att det skulle vara den riktiga anledningen alltså inte om att ge ett pretentiöst asshole där är vi helt överens. Jag vet inte vad du var intresserad av som liten. Kanske sport. Kanske inte. Men jag levde bland böcker. Det var min första tillflykt förutom dagdrömmarna i mitt eget huvud. Och böckerna blev i mångt och mycket min räddning. Alla vill ju vara bra på något. Av alla trick man kan bli bra på för att imponera på det motsatta eller sitt eget kön som finns är det garanterat inte det som ger hög avkastning. Men jag har inte förutsättningarna till att bli bra på att dribbla eller le och vara glad så det fick bli läsning. Privat är ofta mitt bidrag till konversationen och en liten bit information om något ovanligt fakta eller någon konstig idé jag plockat upp i just en bok. Det blir sällan en anekdot eftersom jag inte är särskilt nostalgisk. Jag tänker nästan aldrig på minnen och jag har en tendens att inte romantisera det förflutna. Så när jag väl stöter på ett minne så tycker jag sällan att det vare sig gott eller roligt. Människor romantiserar ständigt det förflutna. Jag tror vare sig att det är sant eller särskilt bra. Jag säger inte att man inte ska bry sig om historia. Det tycker jag inte. Vare sig ens egen eller världshistorien men jag tror inte man ska leva i historien. Inte för att jag lever i nuet, men jag har alltid varit mer av en dagdrömmare än en nostalgiker. Jag blickar framåt in i en framtid som vanligtvis aldrig materialiseras. Och som alla som har upptäckt något de verkligen älskar, ett fotbollslag, en maträtt, en politisk idé eller Jesus Kristus, så vill jag också sprida gospen. 
Jag är övertygad om att bildning är viktigt. Inte nödvändigtvis utbildning, men bildning. För jag tror att det ger kunskap. Visst, det är inte visdom. Men det kan vara en väg dit. Jag tror att det utvecklar oss som människor helt enkelt. För att det utvecklade mig som människa. Och jag tycker att det ska högaktas i minst lika hög grad som att vara riktigt bra på att dribbla. Vilket det inte gör idag, vare sig monetärt eller i relation till den uppmärksamhet man får för det. Särskilt inte här i Sverige som man milt uttryck skulle kunna säga är antiintellektuellt. Jag menar, vi bor i ett land som gav Nobelpriset i litteratur till Bob Dylan och det dödade Leonard Cohen. Och jag vet att jantelagen föreskriver att man inte visar att man kan mer än andra. Jag är medveten om det. Men jag tror att snuttifieringen och nedömningen är en av huvudanledningen till att västvärlden ser ut som den gör idag. Och det är ytterligare en anledning till att jag inte kommer att sluta vara pretto. Så för att sammanfatta, jag hör vad du säger, förstår var du kommer ifrån och du kan vara trygg i att jag inte tror att jag är bättre än dig för att jag kan en massa fina ord. Och jag lovar att i fortsättningen göra mitt bästa med att förklara varför jag kommer att tänka på just de referenserna i just de sammanhangen. Jag misstänker att du i förra avsnittet refererade till att jag nödvändigtvis var tvungen att stoppa in Sisek. Jag vet också att av de saker som... Jag lever för så är jag helt trygg med att jag kan rekommendera böcker eftersom alla mina andra intressen är antingen olagliga eller omoraliska. Jag beklagar också att du känner så för det här avsnittet kommer vara både pretto och elitistiskt men jag hoppas att du härdar ut ändå det lönar sig. Till dig som skrev att du inte tyckte att jag tog upp Trumps seger på ett konstruktivt sätt i förra avsnittet och därför ställer in din Patreon jag vet att du skämtar om att jag inte var konstruktiv alltså. Inte om Patreon. Eftersom den här podden är dekonstruktiv och inte konstruktiv. Men jag tänker låtsas som att jag inte förstår det. För jag vill inte förlora dig som mecenat. Först vill jag tacka dig för att du stött mig på Patreon. Och sen vill jag ge dig rätt. Jag var faktiskt lite stolt över förra veckans avsnitt. Både samtalet med Magnus Norell och den inledning jag skrev i all hast strax efter Trumps seger. Men jag grämde mig över att jag tog upp uppgivenheten utan att adressera den. Dessvärre hade jag en egen inre deadline, inte i förhållande till den gregorianska kalendern som är en av mina ärkefiender. Men den här podcasten kommer ut i relation till vad som sker i omvärlden och min egen inre värld så det fanns en klar och tydlig avsikt med att släppa det avsnittet i så snar anslutning till det amerikanska valet som möjligt. Jag tror den avgränsningen var bra för mig men att jag tog upp uppgivenheten utan att prata om den grämde mig. Jag grämde mig också över att jag inte tog upp det amerikanska valets stora ljuspunkt att Mariana nu är lagligt att bruka i Kalifornien, Massachusetts och Nevada. De gör alltså Colorado och tre andra stater som gjort samma sak tidigare sällskap. Men den stora skillnaden här är att Kalifornien legaliserat bruk. Det är en så stor ekonomi så det kommer driva på legaliseringsvågen ytterligare. Florida, North Dakota och Arkansas har godkänt för medicinsk bruk också. Det är en viktig seger i kriget mot kriget mot narkotika. Det är inte ett avgörande slag men det är fint. Tyvärr tror jag inte att det kommer påverka oss hemma i Sverige lika mycket som jag tror att Trump kan komma att göra som president. Jag är vare sig republikan eller demokrat, mest för att jag inte är amerikan, men även om jag vore det är det väldigt lätt att se, framförallt utifrån att USA brottas med väldigt stora problem och att ingen av alternativen som ligger på bordet ser tilltalande ut. Systemet är så att säga ruttet och Trump ska då återställa det till ursprungligt skick eller bränna det till grunden. Oavsett vad så var det färre än 60% av de som kan rösta som faktiskt röstas så det finns tydligen många som känner att de inte är representerade. Det kan jag dock inte göra så mycket åt. Jag är som sagt inte amerikan och kan inte rösta. 
det närmsta något konstruktivt jag gjort är att jag försökte förklara för mina amerikanska vänner som tänkte rösta på Trump och som också gjorde det att han var farlig för oss i övriga västvärlden och jag avrådde min kusin för att rösta på Sanders eftersom han är socialist och USA då skulle bli lika tråkigt som Sverige. Men båda förklarade bara för mig att de inte kunde rösta på Hillary eftersom hon är en, och jag citerar nu, reptil från yttre rymden. Och vet ni vad? Jag köper det. Jag vet inte hur mycket mer konstruktiv jag kan vara när det gäller Amerikas inrikespolitik och särskilt konstruktiv var jag inte. Jag påverkade ju ingen av mina vänner i deras val. Men Trump kommer att påverka oss i Sverige också. Och precis som jag sa i förra avsnittet tror jag att Trump är synnerligen olämplig att vara en ledare. Inte bara för amerikanerna, överlag. Han är en rolig dokusåpastjärna och en fantastisk skattesmitare, vilket jag givetvis beundrar. Men jag tycker inte att ledaren för någon av våra demokratier i väst ska uppföra sig som han gör. Förutom Italiens premiärminister givetvis, vi saknar alla Berlusconi. Det riskerar nämligen det jag i mitt huvud ser som väst. Och de idéer som utgör grunden för vår demokrati tror jag på, inte i brist på annat. Jag tror att de friheter vi garanteras på pappret är bra. I praktiken kanske det är skit och jag spenderar en stor del av mitt liv till att kritisera det. Men det är inte för att jag vill att det ska försvinna. Det är för att, det är för att jag tycker att vi ska kritisera när vi misslyckas med att leva upp till idealen. Eller som i oss svenskars fall bara låtsas leva efter dem. Så att vi kan bli bättre eller åtminstone skratta åt våra fel och brister. Men jag gör det också för att kritik i sig är en hyllning till flera av just de friheterna. Och som jag ser det finns det värre skit i världen. Det handlar inte om att olika människor gillar olika konsistens av bajs. Det handlar om hur illa det luktar. Och jag tror att demokrati stinker minst. Det är många konservativa i USA och västvärlden nu som försöker trösta sig själva med att det här inte kommer bli så illa. Att Trump kanske kommer att bli det de inbillar sig att Reagan var. En hånad för detta skådespelare som för många konservativa är en förebild för en president ska vara. Men jag tror inte det. För som jag ser det finns en avgörande skillnad mellan Reagans konservatism och Trump. Reagan var framåtblickande, optimistisk. Han hade till och med ett rymdprogram. Visst, Star Wars-projektet kanske var onödigt dyrt och tanken var att kunna utplåna hela världen från rymden. Men i alla fall vetenskapsvänligt. Det hyllar kunskap. Om hur man dödar folk, visst, men ändå fakta. Det kan man knappast säga om Trump. Och det enda han har är en mur. Han bygger hela sin kampanj på nostalgi. Till och med hans slogan refererar till ett svunnet förflutet. Hur nytt är det? Reagan vill kunna skjuta ner mexikaner från rymden. Det är en vision. Jag hade helst sett att våra länder leddes av folk som inte jobbade som clown på Twitter. Dels för att jag tror att hans bristande impulskontroll och fascistoida tendenser är farliga både för individer och system, hur ruttna de än är. Men framförallt för att om den här trenden att rösta in komiker som öser ut sig rasistiska, sexistiska, antisemitiska och islamofoba fördomar håller i sig. Och det ser ju faktiskt ut som att Beppe Grillo, en italiensk komiker som startat ett eget parti i Italien, faktiskt kan vinna där. Riskerar jag ju själv att snart bli statsminister i Sverige och det vill jag inte. Det tror jag inte heller att du vill. Jag hoppas i alla fall att när du säger att jag borde varit mer konstruktiv, inte menar att jag borde starta ett parti och ta över landet. För ska man se till den trenden är nog det mest konstruktiva jag kan göra att hålla mig så långt borta från verklig makt och riktigt ansvar som möjligt. Som det anstår en komiker. Men eftersom Trumps presidentskap kommer att påverka oss också, som det ser ut nu kommer att påverka hela världsordningen, kanske jag kan göra något konstruktivt här hemma. Om vi för ett tag bortser från att jag är en komiker med väldigt lite reell makt, så vad mer än det jag redan gör kan jag göra. Du får gärna berätta för jag vill helst inte förlora en patron på Patreon. 
Jag har ägnat en stor del av mitt liv till att skämta om saker i samhället jag tycker är fel. Och propagera för sånt jag tycker är rätt. I så god demokratisk anda jag kan uppbåda. Med syftet eller åtminstone förhoppningen att mina skämt kan leda till att du ifrågasätter givna sanning eller krossar tabun så att folk kan tala mer öppet. Det är en satirikers funktion. Och politisk satir är inte den största genren inom komik. Jag hade nog haft det lättare ekonomiskt och yrkesmässigt om jag hade haft fler skämt om sånt som folk brydde sig om. Sport, Melodifestivalen eller hur kul det kan vara med katter. Men det gör jag inte. Det är mitt demokratiska ansvar och jag försöker ta det på största allvar. Även om det är lite komiskt att ta just komik på allvar. Men det är väl ambitionen i alla fall. Sen kan jag väl inte påstå att jag lyckats med det. Jag har ju skrikit om narkotikapolitik, övervakning och rymdkolonisering så gott jag kunnat i offentligheten sen innan jag ens började med stand-up. Och vi är mer nyktra, mer övervakade och lika långt ifrån att bosätta oss på djupet där som när jag började. Det enda jag verkar ha lyckats med är att bli av med dig som patron. Och ja, jag vet att djupet är inte är optimalt för mänskligt liv men min ärkefiende Elon Musk har kingat Mars. Vad ska du göra? Han har kingat det liksom. Men jag lovar dig att om du kommer tillbaka som patron ska jag fortsätta att anstränga mig för att ta mitt dekonstruktiva ansvar som komiker. Jag kommer fortsätta driva med saker som är absurda oavsett vilken sida de kommer ifrån för givetvis kommer Trump seger att påverka oss. Och då menar jag inte att jag är rädd för att aborträtten skulle försvinna här hemma. Liknande tendenser även om de skiljer sig tycker jag mig se här också. Jag hoppas för din skull att du missade SVTs agenda efter Trumps valseger men jag råkade se det. Och det var på något sätt en spegel av den berättelse jag tycker mig se i andra länder i väst. En gammal ledning på båda sidor av det politiska spektrat så låsta i sina positioner att de tappat greppet om verkligheten. Gamla system som inte hinner reformeras fort nog i förhållande till globaliseringens konsekvenser och teknologisk utveckling. Inga visioner erbjuds. Det som det gamla uttrycket om förmögenhet lyder bland rika människor. En generation för att förvärva, en för att förvalta och en för att förslösa. Härmed. Först intervjuas Jimmy Åkesson ensam som en outsider. Sen intervjuas partisekreterarna för Sossarna, Lena Rådström och Moderaternas Thomas Tobé. Han sitter bara och repeterar ordet förändring. Antagligen för att hans medietränare har sagt till honom att det är ett bra ord som vissa väljare svarar bra på. I övrigt har Moderaterna klippt och klistrat lite från SD för att täcka upp resten av rösterna. Lena Rådström sitter bara och skyller på alliansens åtta år vid makten. Trots att det är sossarna som har regerat den största delen av det förra århundradet. Man kan knappast kalla det visionärt. Och SD växer. De erbjuder en vision av det förflutna. Precis som Trump. Som jag sa tidigare, jag är inte mycket för nostalgi. Det är inte bara på ett personligt plan. Jag tror inte vi har något val. Som organismer måste vi utvecklas eller dö. Och när man är fast i en tredimensionell kropp färdas man ofrånkomligen framåt genom tiden. Som jag ser det ligger en stor del av ansvaret på Netflix. Genom att införa geofilter så att alla människor i alla länder inte har tillgång till samma filmer och serier spär de på nationalismen och uppmuntrar tribalism. Och de har hjälp av fler, inte bara i sin bransch men regeringar som också begränsar tillgången på information och varor. Jag vill kunna köpa vad som helst, var som helst. Och internets början såg det faktiskt ut som om det skulle bli möjligt. Så är det inte längre. Och så måste vi kanske göra en del förändringar i vårt eget system här hemma. Utveckla vårt eget försvar till exempel. Jag vet vad du tänker. Varför skulle vi göra det? Vi har ju världens bästa försvar. Jag vet. Men jag tycker inte det känns schysst att räkna med att Finland räddar oss den här gången också. Kanske göra så att människor med invandrarbakgrund kommer in på arbetsmarknaden eller kan starta företag. Och sluta dalta med barnen. 
Om svenska barn inte både behövde uppfostra och utbilda sig själva kanske inte allt skulle behöva vara förbjudet eller reglerat för oss vuxna. Det har alltid slagit mig som märkligt att ingen verkar sett sambandet mellan att våra barn ska ha fullständig frihet när vi inte har det. Fast å andra sidan, jag vet inte hur vi ska lära andra att ta ansvar när vi själva aldrig behövt ta det. Kanske sluta toka oss med identitetspolitik. Som jag ser det håller både en stor del av vänstern och SD på med just det. Att vi ska definieras utifrån våra yttre attribut. Var vi är födda, vad vi har för hudfärg eller kön. Snarare än våra inre egenskaper eller argument. Men vad fan vet jag. Vi kanske inte har några. Annars fortsätter jag så gott jag kan. Och hoppas att andra med bättre förutsättningar vågar göra en insats de med. För demokratin kommer alltid behöva försvaras och förändras. Med utgångspunkt i de friheter som lovats oss tycker jag även om det just nu verkar vara up for grabs. Jag hoppas att det var dekonstruktivt nog för dig. Det enda jag kan ge dig utöver det är ett maxim som jag försöker leva efter. Eller kanske trösta mig med när allt känns hopplöst. Jag kämpar inte för att det ska bli bättre, brukar jag säga till mig själv. Jag kämpar för att det inte ska bli värre. Vilket det kan bli i varje Givet ögonblick av dem. Och nu blev det det. Så kom tillbaka till Patreon och stöd mig. Men först, över till veckans samtal. Not to be too formal, Olav Westfalen, but welcome to Deconstructive Criticism. How many years have we known each other now? Three, four years, maybe three years. Three or four years, uh, something, something like that. that. I, I'm. Uh, I think the Gregorian calendar is one of my arch nemesises. Nemesises. Nemesis. That would be the one. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so. Are we doing this in, in all in English or do you? I think so, but you. I mean, you can no, switch no, to no, Swedish whenever you want to no, or feel yeah, comfortable I, with. Jag vet att jag kan svenska för det är en sån stort tema i Sverige alltid om man pratar. Engelska, även om man kan svenska, då tänker de ju alltid att man är nedlåtande eller någonting. Medan jag tycker att man ger dem bättre kvalitet. <laughs> om man pratar engelska. engelska om, ja. Eller om man pratar språket som man kan bäst. Fast när du pratar svenska så låter du ju en smula som drottning Silvia. Men ni älskar ju drottning Silvia, eller hur? Vi? Hon var den, den goda, monarkisten goda... I Kungahuset, eller Ja, det är lite så. För du har samma ursprung som drottning Silvia. Uh, nej, men inte Brasilien. Inte fascisterna. Oh, fascisterna, <laughs> ja, men <laughs> inte Brasilien. No, but Germany. Ja, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm from Germany. Hamburg. You're not going to provide a year. Oh, yeah, yeah, 1963. Yeah. <laughs> All right. In September. So, okay. Oh. Yeah, I know. Uh, I know. Getting there. I'm, I'm getting to the point where people will just have to deal with what I say. Yes. And, and think like, okay, he's not going to be around that much longer. <laughs> and you're currently a professor of art at the Royal Academy of Art here in Stockholm, Sweden. Yeah. And have been for almost 10 years. Oh, nine years, yeah. And, uh, but you won't be for much longer. It's, uh, those are limited, uh, time-limited contracts. 10 years is the normal. And I'm getting ready. 10 years in one place. I've never had a job. Oh, I had a job. I had a job once. For that I kind of lasted in for two years. But until I was 
in my early to mid 40s except for that one job I never had a job so now to have a, have had a job for nine years feels um, it's very strange well how do you think it will feel in a few months time when you're free again uh, I think uh, probably ambivalent because I think uh, this is something I noticed I had been doing a lot of work in with students and younger artists in the US where I lived before I moved here and I noticed when I came here they did they didn't talk to me like normal people but they talked to me like people talking to a professor and I never and I never understood that because in the maybe I'm idealizing but my sense is that in the US uh, there is a kind of camaraderie across these kind of professional and generational divides because everybody knows that you're artists and you're fucked anyway so it's not whereas here the, this the status of the of this title is uh, actually palpable and i found it disgusting in the beginning but then i also have to admit that i've made use of it here and there so on initially my i would say it will be great to be back uh, in the studio and do my own work and to have a completely different schedule and so on it's also true that the art market isn't quite as generous to people of my ilk as it was 10 years ago when it was very generous uh, and it's also true that in sweden the benefit of that kind of title uh, is not to be underestimated but that's something i'm generally critical of so i think i'll feel good anyway really you're an artist you're not a professor no i'm an artist yeah. yes and you met your swedish wife in new york begot exactly. uh, children and then had to move here it's not that simple. I mean, we lived in New York for 12 years. Uh, Anna was never fully convinced. I mean, she always, I feel like she always kind of, kind of had a foot out of the door and said these typical things that I say now. Like, I'm not like them. They don't get my humor. I don't really feel like I belong here. And, and, and so after roughing it out for 12 years, it felt only fair that it was kind of my time to um, go somewhere else. So, so I wanted to also, I was ready to leave New York. Uh, and then the options discussed were either Berlin or Stockholm. And then there was a interest from the academy to have me here. And that was, of course, much easier for Anna, who used to work for the UN and still works in kind of state, state agencies, much easier to come here than to Berlin. Uh, so I, I wanted to come. I, I wanted to come. But now I'm the one who basically... Um, is uh, sitting on the fence and saying, I can't really fully commit to this. No. <laughs> so you want to leave again, basically? A part of me ha wanted to leave from day one. You know, Why? To, well, because I on day one I went to the supermarket and I was studying the grocery shelves and uh, uh, not looking up because they were all in Swedish and suddenly I realized there was had been a person behind me with a shopping cart for five minutes quietly staring me down indignantly instead of once, once opening his little Swedish mouth and saying, and, and that, that kind of the insanity of this kind of basically retarded communication that you have to deal with every single day is just really uh, pulls you down as a human being. <laughs> so, so part of me really felt like this is a very strange place from the beginning. 
Uh, I lived here my entire life, so I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, this is the funny thing. Swedes are the first ones to admit that there's something fundamentally wrong. But then, if as a foreigner you dare to articulate those things, they are very, very upset. There's some some rule, like it's a little bit like making uh, making jokes about um, gangs or gangbangers. If you, you have to be black to make the jokes. You have to be Swedish to criticize Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> In a sense, yes. And I'm a Swedish citizen, so I am free to criticize as much as I want, although my Jewish heritage sort of uh, is in the way sometimes, I yeah, suppose. I think we almost have to share the one of the funniest passages in this book that we just worked on together. Yes, I was, I was thinking we were going to get to that. So yeah. we met like three to four years ago. Yep. You sought me out? Yeah. I mean, I was uh, starting to do... A I had often worked with art that borders on comedy or is interested in comical things and so on. And so I was trying to do this bigger or longer project about art and comedy or how they're similar, how they're different, when I think comedy becomes very, very close to certain forms of contemporary art and when art becomes pretty funny voluntarily or... (laughs) <laughs> unvoluntarily. And I, I just looked around for people that might be interested and interesting. And um, and you found me. I was willing for, to work yeah. for almost nothing. It was, I think it was actually Pella who knew you somehow. Could that I be think it? she... Yeah, yeah. So she'd I met me. Asked for, Pella and I were very close friends and she was a filmmaker. Uh, and uh, I just asked people I trusted. Uh, and then and you were one of the names that popped up and then somebody else had had seen you and thought that was good, and so we that's how the contact came about. Yeah. Yes, and then I participated in a few of your events during this quite long project. Mm-hmm. It's been going on for, what, five years? Oh, not that long, but maybe, maybe all together. But now it's also kind of finished. Now we've published the book, so it's officially wrapped up. But That's also why we're doing this podcast no, now. Exactly, the book. This is a sort of a, yeah... Debrief. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So two and a half, three years at least, yeah. With not continuously, but intermittently having events, conversations, performances, yes. stuff like that. I had to meet quite a few artists who imagined themselves comedians. So uh, how come you were interested in this? Because you were a comedian before you became an artist. I was a cartoonist. Very early on. I mean, out of high school, I started drawing comic strips and cartoons, and then quite soon... Mostly funny pictures of Muhammad, I suppose. No, no, No. I I, I have no interest in... in, Maybe that's worse than saying you're against it. I have no interest interest in Islam. I I have no interest in Christianity either. I'm I'm of that generation that thought we were done with religion. Yeah. (laughs) But, but, well, there's a number of things that didn't quite work out the way... (laughs) We thought they would. Yeah, exactly. So no, I'm, I'm, no, 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 no. You just did funny comic strips. Oh, I think they they were uh, subversive. They were badly drawn, and they were always uh, very, very soon. We started drawing together with some friends. In the end, it turned out to be a collaboration with one very close friend, Marcus Weimar, with whom I still make cartoons, and it's been twenty five years now. And him, I've also met. And he doesn't consider himself an artist in the least. Oh, no, no, no. He, he despises artists. I think he admires them too, but he, he, he just thinks it's ridiculous. <laughs> he just thinks it's phony. And, yeah, uh, I liked him a lot. No, oh, he's a good guy. Yeah. He's a good guy. And, I mean, in, in Germany where we started this, or in the German-language countries, we are probably 
just at least as well known as cartoonists as you know I am as a fine artist. Um, so yeah, so, so I've been doing a lot of cartoon and comics, and out of that came uh, sort of in the when was that? That must have been the mid '90s. There was a huge boom of comedy in Germany, where suddenly there was the money to instead of buying American formats or British formats to produce comedy, and so and they realized we don't have any. Comedians. Funny people writing for television <laughs> since, the, since uh, Heinz Erhard in the 60s or something. So they started really recruiting people, and they came to us also. And suddenly, for a couple of years, it was very easy to make a lot of money. I mean, relatively speaking, but still, good money just writing pretty stupid things for TV. Some things were really very funny. But so out of that came this interest of, I mean, going back and forth between that world and the world of cartooning and comic strips and satire, writing for print media and the fine art world, there was this this realization that I take things back and forth and some artworks, I think, are not, not much more than a really good pun and some comedy routines are actually as good as a complicated poetic monologue. You know? and, and, and so I, was, I thought that those distinctions were kind of uh, too categorical. And, um, and I also do... I mean, this is what this book, which is, by the way, called Dysfunctional Comedy... It's, is that also the name of your project? You mean the whole research project? Yes. Over the two years? I think actually I started it out as something like a crypto comedy and pseudo comedy. I mean, it was some kind of silly title that was supposed to sound complicated enough to get funding, which it did. Uh, and then it was very, very open once. I mean, there were some names in it from the beginning. A lot of the people who actually were in these events artists, comedians, writers, were already mentioned. So in, in a way, I was a good Swedish academic. I stuck to the... But then the form it took and what we... Yeah, it was completely... It developed out of the people that came together very much. So, so the book is called Dysfunctional Comedy. I'm one of the contributing uh, assists. When is it released, published? Well, well it's, it's printed now. It's, we have it here in front of us. It's uh, in... Some beautiful shrink wrap. It's very yes. nice, nice book. Um, it has a picture of a banana on it, upside down. And a naked child. And a, and a photo of my daughter taking an inflatable banana to the beach. So this is possibly an illegal book. I I mean I yes. If I mean if people really 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 want to interpret the law in the most perverse and libidinous and desperate way, they could. But it's I mean. It's, Welcome to Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> well, Germany has has new child porn laws now too. But I mean, it is of course it's a, it's a vacation photo, and it's you don't see genitals, you don't see a face, you see a, a an undressed three and a half year old. So I think it's it would be a, a stretch. But uh, I'm not. I wouldn't be surprised if there somebody... was a like a court order in Sweden a few years ago. A cartoonist got. Don't you know this? He 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 got. Well, sentenced for child pornography because he had uh, drawn some very young-looking elves engaged in what could be... Elf play? Yes. No. Yeah. I haven't seen it. I can't... You know, I think it's, it's, these things are so silly to discuss in, in the abstract, which the law always does. I mean, I mean, if you look at this book cover, I think it would be incredibly, incredibly hard to imagine that there's any kind of... Um, erotic uh, affect or intention, but uh, hey... It's a naked child. That's enough for you. Uh, well, no, it's not enough, but it's a naked child... Upside down, though, that's the opposite. ...schlepping a huge banana. 
bath toy. It's summer. It's skone. Um, and then also it's upside down. The picture is upside down. So, so by, you know, in terms of visual logic, you'd say it's the opposite of a naked child. It's, it's an, a dressed old person. It's a, it's a very, very <laughs> heavily dressed old person. <laughs> you can try and make that argument in I mean, court. Come on, you, gotta be, you have to expect some kind of visual literacy. Yes. You know, with the, when they did the, the German runes, the, they, didn't like the, um, they didn't like the cross for death and the star for birth because that was too Christian. So, I mean, when, they, when the Nazis reformed the language and made different typewriters, and so instead of the the star for indicating someone's birth date, they had like the fire, the, the fire rune pointing up and for death they had it pointing down. So it's, it's established that if you turn something upside down... It's if you know your Nazi topography, mm-hmm. then this shouldn't be a problem. No, so basically an upside down swastika is basically a Star of David. How so? It's the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, yeah, okay, well, I can I accept that. I handstand. I'm a brother. <laughs> <laughs> I understand, yes. <laughs> But people don't think like visually like that. That's a pity. <laughs> And if I stand on my hands, I'm a Nazi. I'm sorry, Apparently. but you knew, you knew that. <laughs> yes. I was quite good at standing on my hands when I was a child. Oh, I, I haven't tried in years, and I don't think I would dare now. So I think the book, the cover is, is very charming and harmless, and the book is uh, yeah, it's a collection of essays, which one of them is yours, which I think is really important to tie the book to the kind of... the practice of comedy rather than just people fantasizing about it <laughs> that was my function in this oh, project wasn't it to uh, sort of uh... well I think there are fantasies on both sides I think there are definitely uh, comedians many who, who on some level think they should have been artists you know whether it's Steve Martin who became a collector instead or I mean there's all these kind of weird Andy Kaufman I think was happy where he was but I think was taking a lot of things from the art world into So there are these these fantasies about what the other side does. And so, yeah, you were kind of the the reality principle that if you point out that, of course, if an artist goes out there quoting comedy or current popular culture, that person, she or he may be doing exactly the opposite or something very, very different that just takes that as material or as form or something. No. And then also I think there is a, there is a, there's a lack of preciousness in, in entertainment. You know, it, it has to work. It kind of has to be fast. It kind of has to be uh, generous. You know, you get, you don't, you're not entertained if people are stingy with you. No. In the, in the art world right now is really a cult of stinginess and scarceness and, and uh, aloofness. And I think that just to have somebody who actually then comes and cracks some real jokes. <laughs> was really, really, I did, and it really, was quite funny. Yeah. No, and not to the audience, uh, and it shouldn't have been for me either, I think, but uh, it was such an interesting uh, milieu to perform in. I mean, I performed two or three times, mm, I think three times in, in different events, oh. and uh, I think the Cringe Night at the gallery up at Odenplan. Oh, well, to the dance theater. Yeah. Yes, went quite well. That was a capacity crowd. There were like 300 people in the room. Yes. For an art event. I mean, come on. And they stayed for, what, three hours? Almost. Yes. It was a long night. Something you wanted to share from the book? Um, no, I think what's important is that it talks quite seriously about... On the one hand, it talks quite seriously about how humor 
uh, works in contemporary art and culture and how what it can be used to and what it cannot be used to <laughs> and how it can be abused also. Uh, and at the same time, it's very readable. I mean, all the essays, I think, are quite conversational. Yes. And quite, uh, I mean, basically not addressed to an art historian or a theorist or an artist only, but really to to a kind of general, more or less general audience. And it has a lot of short, very short and, and, and easy to read and fun to read descriptions of artworks, mostly performances or things that happen in specific situations uh, that deal with this. And so it, it's, a, it's a real, it became a reading book, which is why it's called A Reader. And I think it's uh, really useful. It's very untimely. It's not fashionable at all. It's How of, so? Because, for example, we have Rory Rosin, who is an Israeli artist, very interesting artist, very important also, but kind of an Israeli dissident, if you want to put it that way, who really questions um, the, the, the construction of identity or the idea of identity as a basis for artistic work. Uh, and that's, of course, something that in Sweden right now, I, for example, could never raise that question. Why? Um, well, for the same... Okay, there's a moment in the book, in the conversation, where we talk about who gets to make what joke and what is it... How important is it who... What your identity... And I'm making question marks in my, with my fingers here, really loud. I hope, don't know if one hears that. Um, what your identity is uh, as part of uh, the, the, the communication or the comical communication. And there's this moment where one of the people on the panel says to Aaron... Uh, well, you can do that because you're not a white. No, you're not white. Yes. Which shocked me, you know. Well, uh, in Sweden, uh, as I said in the panel discussion, that's true. Is that true? Well, here I'm. I have my hair and beard are too brown or blackish to be considered entirely white. But what about the the? Vulnerable? But if I move down on the continent, then I'm white. But what about, it's not a, it's not about being Jewish. It's about just about pigmentation and hair. I think so. Yeah. Wow. What about Valon and uh, the Valon and? Uh, I can't the... really get away with telling people I'm a Valon. Oh. What about uh, uh, the Sami? Yeah, maybe. But they're not. They are actually. If, if I had a reindeer in tow, they are, they are ethnic others. Yeah, of yeah. course. So I am, for the listeners who have never seen a picture of me, I would pass as a Swede without much problem. You would be Hitler's favorite Swede. Because <laughs> I'm German. <laughs> <laughs> so, so from that position, and, and, and given that identity is discussed in rather essentialist terms right now, it's just not a place from which you question the construction of identity. Um, so I so in, in in and I wouldn't I wouldn't I respect this and I think it's an important discourse even though I think it's wrong. It's it's simplistic. Yes. It's it's it's, it's going down the wrong road fast and uh, I'm, I'm. And there's been a huge fight at the art academy about this. Oh, you're talking about Angela Davis. Am I? Oh, okay. Uh, now you want to talk? <coughs> yeah, Angela Davis was invited. For a lecture? Oh, yeah. To give a lecture like yeah. a few a year ago? Oh, almost uh, something like that, yeah. 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 And the controversy there was what? Well, in her case, okay, Angela Davis uh, did her doctoral work with Herbert Marcuse in San Diego. 
And so her, her academic work really comes out of a reassessment of the Frankfurt School of, of um, you know. What's the Frankfurt School? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a group of people that were teaching in Frankfurt and then emigrated to California during the war, uh, Adorno, Horkheimer most, most notably, who formulated a kind of Marxist uh, aesthetic of the time and who were incredibly influential initially at least for the, for the kind of uh, rebellions of the 60s. And Marcuse, I think, being in San Diego when this all happened, took a very different um, take on it than Adorno and Horkheimer. Please, I'm not an expert on this. I'm, I'm sort of scraping together my, my school knowledge. Uh, and, but, but Marcuse was somebody who I think tried to reformulate these ideas of crit- crit- criticism or criticality critical theory in the context of, for example, um, human rights movements in the U.S., uh, feminist movements, and so on. So, so who was uh, actively trying to bring these kinds of ideas that had germinated in Central Europe before the war as a critique of fascism and, and militarism and so, and so on uh, into, a, into a post-war, let's say, into a, diff- a completely different culture where maybe also the... I mean, one of the things that those thinkers of the Frankfurt School discovered when they moved to the U.S., specifically California, was that, of course, uh, in, or if, if a measure of fascism is how, uh, norm, how homogenized and how rule-based and how controlled a society is, then maybe uh, the Gestapo is not necessarily more effective than Hollywood uh, cinema, or maybe consumerism is just as effective as... Uh, the SS, you know, and I mean, there was in relation a, to what? In 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 terms of creating a society uh, that that penalizes otherness, uh, difference, uh, discord, and so on. That that creates a situation where people ultimately behave according to what they're told to be do. I mean, it's it's one. Uh, if you want to be people to behave, one one way to do that is, you know, basically the let's say, the Stalinist model, like if you don't, we'll come and get you. And the other one is, is of course, uh, and this is how I think uh, Adorno analyzed consumer capitalism, is, of course, by, by um, manipulating people's desires and uh, employing their libido for doing exactly that. You know? yes. and, and this is, of course, the, the model that won out, if you look at our lives right now. I mean, we are now in this cycle of having to buy another iPhone every two years, not because anybody is going to beat us over the head if we don't, but because it's so... It's socially dovet- unacceptable not to have a yeah, smartphone. It also dovetails with our desires. It's so much nicer to touch an iPhone than, uh, than my old Nokia or something. Like yeah. So, I mean, there, there, is, there is this kind of... There are other ways of, of, of controlling uh, society. So back to Angela Davis. So she had worked with Marcuse in, in California, her... in. in her first teaching assignments were actually in art schools at in, Cal- in San Francisco, CCAC. And uh, so there was a natural connection between her and Marta Kuzma, the former dean uh, at Konserskulan, uh, who, who had done her doctoral work on Herbert Marcuse and uh, who was very interested in, in thinking, kind of continuing to think about the viability of those ideas today. So there was a connection, and because of that connection, Angela Davis, who has no uh, 
har ju brist, vad heter den? No, no lack of speaking engagements from what I understand. Uh, expressed an interest to come to Stockholm and speak at Mayan, at a small art school on an island uh, full of... A small art school, globally speaking, yeah. but Sweden's most prestigious art school. Yeah, but small compared to the universities, for example, around. And, and so I think part of the conflict already was seeded there, that there were other academic institutions that said, why doesn't she speak here? There were also other, let's say, societal institutions that said, basically said, we, we should own this because we are the activist community that actually has a, has a connection and a, and a moral, let's say, or an ethical investment in, in this rather than those uh, middle-class, mostly white uh, art students, many of whom come from a fair amount of cultural capital. But that, of course, is already deep into the territory of stereotyping because, of course, there's also a lot of um, students at that school that do not come from those. But do you mean, I mean, there was more to the controversy of inviting Angela Davis than different leftist groups fighting over who should have her speak at their place. Well, I mean, what what ensued then, yeah, it became basically about... I think Angela Davis did an amazing thing. She gave two talks at the same time. She wanted to be in an art school because she, I think, from what I understand, she really does believe in art <laughs> as a, as something that, that has the potential to at least be part of social change. Um, and because that because of that, she is really interested in in aesthetics and in aesthetic theory and so on. At the same time, of course, she is an activist, a political activist, and deeply engaged with the you know struggle against mass incarceration in the U.S., uh, human rights, Black Lives Matter, and these things. So what happened at Mayan then is that suddenly you had two audiences in the room. You had um, uh, the majority were actually uh, activists from Afro-Svenskana and so on. Uh, who were incredibly excited, and um, I already feel like I see this is this is what's fucked up. I was there. Uh, I had some really nice conversations with Angela Davis, and I'm sitting here and thinking, like, I'm not supposed to talk about this. It's not. I don't have why because in this culture you don't have license to speak about uh, race. Other than from a position of... But you're from the master race. There must be something. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but you know what I mean. You know what I mean? That, that it, it's stunning that I sit here and I feel like... And, and you, you, you've lived here now for 12 years. Uh, nine. Nine. Eight. Eight, eight okay. Uh, so how, how long did you stay in this country before you felt this sort of veil of self-censorship... Uh, descend uh, behind your eyes? Well, I, I noticed early on things like... Uh, uh, because you're a progressive person, right? And, and, and you're a critic as well. Yeah, whatever. And I wouldn't describe you as conservative in any way, shape or form. No, but I do... I do um, I re- honestly, I do have a penis. Yes, I know. You're a white <laughs> male, but that doesn't... I mean, you're biologically constructed to be a white male. Yeah, exactly. Yes. But you're also a lunatic. I've parted with you, I know. Oh, 
I mean, I try. <laughs> I, try I try. No, but uh, what was I? No, I mean, I mean, there are these situations where you, you sit, let's say, in a seminar situation, mm-hmm. and you think everybody is saying what's on their mind, and people are just trying to push the ideas or the topic or the... And then afterward, and it's super exciting, and it's true that maybe four people in the room do the talking. I would think that's because they're the four people who are either most in, most engaged, or maybe they're the four people who are have most to say, or most who, experienced. Yeah, or who, who thought about it most before. And of course, if somebody sh- is shut up, or if there's an if there's really kind of um, a rhetorical violence going on, I would spot that. But generally, I don't have a problem uh, with a conversation that's that's steered or dominated by a handful of people. And I don't have a problem listening to a conversation like that either. I mean, I'm quite happy if I'm in a room full of people who are more expert than me on a, on a given question. I'm very, very thankful to just sit back and take notes and feel like this is luxury. I very soon learned that in Sweden, that's not okay. The most important thing is not what comes out of the conversation, not what kind of knowledge or learning experience we go through. The most important thing is, did everybody get to speak? And I was like, why? Some, sometimes some people don't want to speak. Yeah. And, and sometimes you also have to tell people, look, I want you to speak, but I don't want you to say things that mean nothing. And I don't want you to destroy. I mean, there's this... Um, Can you exemplify? So what happened at this event? The, uh, the Angela Davis. Oh, the Angela Davis event. Okay, now I have to go back to that. Um, I, I wanted to tell this story of this friend of mine in New York um, who's... Uh, he told me that he was sitting at a dinner next to a really, really quiet person, you know, and kind of, and every every kind of attempt at a at a conversation kind of fell flat. Or when that person finally did speak, it was incredibly tedious. And then at one point, he turned around to her in this case and said, "What are you doing to my conversation?" <laughs> and I think that is that is very, very interesting because you you could never do that in Sweden. This idea that that Speaking is also an act of generosity, an act of sharing, an act of investment in a relationship, um, and not your right. You know, you want to speak, better speak well. <laughs> you know? That's the, so. That was that um, at the Angela Davis event. It became a huge scandal because um, there, of course, wasn't place to seat everybody. Even though the school tried to accommodate as many people as possible, way beyond what fire restrictions allowed, and then. I had another, I think, 500 people in different rooms with live feeds. And later, at the end of the, after the lecture, uh, all these people kind of congregated in the big atrium in the middle where Angela Davis did another 45 minutes of question and answer and kind of improvised meeting. So, So it really was, given the infrastructure of the academy, it was people tried to accommodate the the audience or as best as possible. But of course, there wasn't the same amount of space as it would have been in a huge university auditorium. Um, and so what very quickly, the, 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 the aftermath of this memorable talk was really about uh, the white elitist art school uh, in some way um, marginalizing or, or, or not allowing access to Angela Davis to the community that really had a right to be there, and so on. And I think, you know, the, I'm, I'm totally certain that with a better understanding of 
the local scene or a better communication between, let's say, the art academy and, and the activist scene in Stockholm, there would have been a, a less of that. So that's all. So, w- Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What was the question then? What was the big discord in this group of people? That they couldn't get enough activists in to listen to her when she was invited to an art school? Oh. Part, and, part, part of it was that, that the art school had said the students, of course, because it is at the school, it is part of the academic uh, programming, uh, students who sign up uh, have priority. So, so about half of the seats were gone by the time people from the general public and it's lined up. kind and of ironic that you bring up fire restrictions in retrospect. Yes. Considering yes. that the art school actually burnt down. Yes. You set fire to it. Yes. Do you want no, to admit? No, no, no. I, <laughs> I, I think it was a genuine and, and honest accident, as far as we know. No, <laughs> nothing else has come out. Yes. Um, but what was amazing about the Angela Davis talk is that she came in, she was greeted like a rock star, people were chanting, and she was good. I mean, she had that presence and that, uh, you know, generosity, or generosity and love for the students and everybody. And uh, and she's you know that that was that and then from that you know sp- she started veer- veered into speaking about you know Horkheimer or even worse Kant <laughs> Horkheimer Adorno Marcuse and it was dead silent in the room and you could have heard a needle drop and you could see that people were visibly uncomfortable with her basically entering a discourse that belonged to the art world also of course was by historical necessity dominated by a bunch of dead white men. Um, and then when it, basically when it felt like she was really losing her audience, she shifted gear and spoke about Black Lives Matter or uh, human rights struggle and really got them back. And it was kind of suddenly it was a rock concert again. But then she came back and talked about in, in a way... Because that's what she was there for. Well, I think she was exactly there to make that bridge, which is incredibly hard to do in one talk. So I was fascinated and and incredibly impressed because if I speak to, I mean, you know, sometimes you meet students and you're totally on the same page with them politically and you agree with the urgency of of, of their problem or question and you want them to do that and go for it. and But you have to tell them it's what you're doing is mediocre propaganda. So it's not great art and it's not even great communication. It 
it preaches to the converted and you'll be, you know, the people who pat you on the shoulder anyway will pat you on the shoulder, but you're not even seriously addressing or, or thinking about what this means in the large... Or maybe you don't want to. Maybe this is about feeling... This is about a kind of sectarian thing, which I can also respect. But then why, you know, invite the larger audience to this? So so as, as, a, as an artist teaching, it happens very often that the things that I think are politically most urgent and in a way most sympathetic to me are also kind of really poorly considered as aesthetic positions or propositions and coming from me that of course has no currency that can be very easily dismissed. how can it have no currency you're a prof- you're an artist and a professor of art since 10 years yeah but uh, but it i'm i'm sorry this is this is a, this is a kind of essentialist identity discourse where it's very i mean once you assume that it is about these kinds of uh, constructions of identity, then uh, it doesn't matter. Then I'm probably just a professor because I'm a white man. Let's start from there. Well, it could have been any white man. It wasn't. It was you. Yeah. So there must be more than just your skin color and your penis. Yeah, and I tan well even. I'm not even... (laughs) But that's maybe good in Sweden because it's so tanning obsessed. Interesting story. Uh, We're not done. Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> no, but so, so I think that kind of... And I don't think it's even criticism towards sort of an, an activist cultural uh, scene. I think it's more like, in a way, Angela Davis saying, look, there's tools out there. They are actually things that have been formulated, yes, maybe by white men, but in, in, in opposition to fascism and to, to truly horrific white men. <laughs> And that is, I think that's, it is legitimate to make a differentiation between Goebbels and Marcuse, even though from a certain viewpoint they may look like the same. But I think they... You mean because they're both white men? Hmm. Well, German. I see them as the same because one's a fascist and the other's a communist, and I oh, pretty yeah. much think and, that's and, the same thing. And you're a neoliberal. <laughs> well, no. So the talk sort of escalates from... Uh, after- no, no, the talk went well. And I do think that the people who were there were incredibly, incredibly appreciative. And I spoke to a lot of uh, students, uh, both students of color and, and good old Swedish students, who, for whom it was really a transformative moment, for whom it raised uh, so many important issues. But the, the press fallout afterwards seemed to have very little to do with it. It was almost almost entirely about how the school had mishandled it, how people, how activists who had a right to be there were denied access. There was even a kind of a one, one um, thing that was about how the guards at the door, and these were students guarding the doors, had spoken in English to the, uh, the Afri- no, I mean, well, Afro-Swedish. Uh, yeah, to the Afro-Swedish activists who wanted to come in and how that was arrogant. Now, in this case, I know that student. She is a Brazilian. Uh, she was a Brazilian guest student who um, doesn't speak Swedish. So, and, and she's actually partially Af- of African heritage. So, so it's even more absurd that she gets accused for somehow um, representing some kind of White male patriarchy. American Aryan uh, conspiracy. When, uh, but it was her job to, when the fire department said it's enough, to be the person who said, I'm sorry, it's enough. 
And she did that in English. And that afterwards in the press got construed as a kind of uh, condescending, arrogant... Um, I think it was even construed as they thought we couldn't speak Swedish. That's, that was, the, that was the, the gist of it. It's like, how racist are they to look at us and think we don't speak Swedish? It's like... When in reality, she didn't speak Swedish. No. <laughs> and she knew she didn't speak Swedish. So. Exactly. Yeah. So the alternative for her was Portuguese or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. I don't know yeah, how yeah. to pronounce it, so that was yeah. probably wrong. But yeah. Brazilian. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> no, so, 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 so to me, that, I, I think it was an amazing event, and it really, I think, for a lot of people who were there, uh, reframed a lot of the discussions, and, 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 um, and, it, and uh, it was also, I mean... She also spent another day or so at the school talking to a lot of people, and I think it was definitely uh, raising a lot of uh, the problems that are there or the kind of blind spots of that academy that loves to hide behind the idea of free art and artistic um, um, autonomy uh, in order to cover up, for example, you know, how homogenous the school still is in terms of class, more almost more than ethnic origin, I think class is the real uh, kind of, uh, what do you call it, the blind spot or the repressed. Rep a lot of the students are upper class or come from uh, cultural upper class. Yeah, I mean, I mean or, or, or even, I mean, this school, this is quite interesting. There is, I, I, there is research about this. I, don't, can't, I may quote it slightly wrong, but the gist is right that until the 1980s, and it was founded in 1735 or something like that, so between 1735 and the 1980s, there hasn't been a single artist teaching at that school that wasn't from within a five or ten kilometer radius around um, Estaman. That's kind of hard to do. Yes. That takes effort. <laughs> I mean, come on. This this country has been importing people from Holland, people from Germany, people from France, people from the other Scandinavian countries like crazy. It takes some real effort <laughs> to make sure that everybody comes out of basically the same sandbox. <laughs> I, I can't decide if Swedes think art is not important or if they think it's too important so that very few people should actually practice it. I, th I don't know if Swedes are one group there. I think there is. Uh, well, I'm uh, I'm having a Swedophobic year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, I mean, I think on the. I mean, there is that which I think good social democratic tradition of thinking of art as something that should be publicly funded, that should be quite inclusive, that should also go out, not not just happen in the capital or in the cultural centers, but go out to the periphery and the countryside and so on. You know, that's one, one set of concerns which I generally sympathize with. The problem there is that, uh, at least in its latest variation under Alice Barkunke, it's also ha has been incredibly casual in terms of instrumentalizing art, to think that art is actually a tool of, let's say, a direct tool of Policy. Education, policy, democratic development, and so on. And I think that's very dangerous because then, I mean, just change the, change the political party and you have a, you have a horrific situation. I mean, it's, it's maybe, it may be benevolent if you agree on politics, but in, in principle it's, of course, quite uh, crazy to have a, a political uh, establishment that expects art to do their bidding. Yeah. I mean... That's propaganda, it's not art. It 
at least runs that risk. You know? I don't even think that there's a kind of Stalinist or fascist uh, mindset behind it. I actually think the problem is, I don't think they... Well, the road to hell is paved with good intention. Yeah, but the problem behind it is I think that there's people who cannot think of how to justify expenditures for art and culture if they cannot say, but it's good for you. It's good for, you know, it's good for the suburbs. It's good for teenagers. It's good for democracy. If they cannot have... And so, so the problem is more a lack of, basically a lack of culture on yes. the side of the of the politically responsible who cannot make that argument that it's good to have something that's not instrumentalized. Its function is actually <laughs> its lack of a primary function, that it is one place where where speculation is encouraged, where where also... Well, it has it has a very, I think, clear function, art. Um, creative endeavors in general have a very clear function. It's just that you can't measure the direct results. No, but it also has... I think it also... Yeah, I mean, and the, the it's also something that that in a way defers use value. The idea: what is this good for? Is 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 the question that you are allowed to ask almost anywhere? Uh, and usually, the answer is it makes money. Yeah, <laughs> well, that is true of art as well. Yeah, yeah, but but at least uh, as long as there was a kind of relatively um, open-minded and and. Uh, uh, Let's say, let's say a non-judgmental state funding. You could say there was a space where, where it didn't it didn't have to make money. It could be about spending money, and it also didn't have to be good for something immediately. It was good enough that it, it, it's it's a society that thinks if if somebody really really wants to do this or wants to find out about this or needs to paint this, yeah, let's let's do that. Let's let's have that because. Everywhere else, we just uh, try to make the numbers add up at the end of the month. You know? y yes. So I think it's it is actually. I mean, maybe it's a, it's. A But it is also a luxury item. Or, uh, I mean, that's well, why that's why people collect art. Yeah. yeah. Once yeah. once the market comes into play, that is true. But there's also, at least historically, you had a lot of collectors who had a had a real, you know. Uh, love relationship with art, and who weren't so much interested in. In the status or the or the uh, accumulation of wealth, or, or I mean the investment, but they were interested in uh, being part of something that uh, putting something in the world that it hasn't been there and that might change the way we see the world. I mean that, but it it won't change it in predictable ways. You know, if if I say, okay, I'll give you funding for this project for, but in the end, I want uh, to have a higher literacy rate in this part of the country. That's not art. That's uh, all kinds of, and this is also actually quite interesting. How art becomes the cheaper, the cheap replacement for necessary social policies or social uh, work. You know, we're saying, ah, you know, it's we could start a youth center with real educators, na 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 na, and make it sustainable and long term, and give, or we could just send some artists there who do an intervention. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, well, um, hey, this is not so funny yet. Nobody's, well, nobody's this th no, this is never a funny podcast. Oh, okay, this is deconstructive criticism. We mm. just, I, I just criticize things in yeah. different ways. Yeah. Actually, last season uh, when I did this, I, I, I wanted to uh, talk to people who had ideas that I actually liked, mm. but most of those ideas were critical of something else. Yeah. So, you know, in the end, it's what it is, and. 
at least it's supposed to be interesting. Oh, yeah. yeah. That, that I hope it would be. I think it already might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what happened after the Angela Davis? Then the press fallout. Well, it was basically, it kind of stopped there. It stopped uh, instead of uh, somebody... But you don't have those writers really right now in, in, in art criticism, and this falls into the art field. Uh, you have it online, but in, in the print media, instead of somebody say, trying to understand what Angela Davis was actually trying to do and how that really, I think, provided an opening for both sides, and what happened is that, that people decided to go back to basically pr- predictable um, dichotomies of... You up there, we down here, uh, and 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 it became. I think it became kind of a way to to position themselves for for already established players Be- in in this debate. And because there there were already factions at the art school. Oh, but now you're talking about uh, this. Uh, this was kind of happening almost. I mean, it, it was of course part of. A discussion at the art school. The, okay, the art school has uh, gone through, I would say, almost two years of something that's kind of uh, amounting to civil war. And it's been rough. Uh, and it's been... Um, How would you describe it? I mean, because in my mind, I, on, I only read uh, what I read in the papers. Mm. And then I know some artists on both sides of this conflict. Yeah. Uh, and uh, basically, from an outside perspective, it's uh, a part of the collegiate. Uh, some teachers wanted to get rid of the principal, which they also sort of did. Oh. I- in the end. Oh, that's that's shorthand. Yeah. Uh, I think it's w- extremely shorthand. Yeah, but but I'm also a comedian, yeah. so you know, yeah, I don't have to be to diplomatic that, or nothing. Then I would say. Uh, uh, a small part of the faculty and very few students wanted to get rid of the principal, but large parts of the Stockholm art world and even the Stockholm architecture world wanted to get rid of the principal. And that's where I think it gets very murky, that in a way the, the starting shot of this campaign against the former principal was not, did not come from within the school. It came from outside the school. It came from Konstakademien, which is a completely separate entity that has no say or no mandate or no even right to meddle with a publicly paid high school building. And so so to me, that was a a real moment. That was kind of a shock that that would be possible in Sweden. That 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 a, a kind of a if you so want a lobby group, an institution that's true, and an old institution that has a historical ties to to the art school, but is completely separate from it now, and all the on paper. But this is a small country. And that's the point. The, the, what this made clear to me for the first time, because I'm new to Sweden, is that you have a rhetoric of transparency bureaucratic control, order, objectivity, uh, democratic process, and underneath you have incredibly powerful powerful, uh, lines of informal power that are basically, they're not even, it's not even that they're not, that they're not um, counteracted by these kind of bureaucratic mechanisms, but they're actually veiled by them. 
It's almost like the the, the ritual of uh, Mörteskultur and uh, participation and and equality is actually is actually the veil or the lie uh, to cover up a culture that's deeply, deeply um, traditional and where power is organized against lineages that probably go generations back. Yes. Uh, and that and and that, uh, that 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 in in the situation, just imagine, just imagine a German university, medical department, medical department, and a pharmaceutical company starts to go public, criticizing how they teach medicine. It would be a massive scandal. It would be it would be considered because universities are supposed to be independent. Freiheit der Forschung und der Lehre. Yeah, they are supposed to be their own entity and and any kind of interest group. Could you just translate that phrase in German that you just said? Freiheit der Forschung und der Lehre, freedom of research and uh, education. Yes. Oh. Well, that's one of the, and you have that here too. No. On, Obvi- paper, on paper. On paper, absolutely. <laughs> I, I know enough about it. But, but so, so to me, the fact that, that this kind of um, feeding frenzy that was staged against Marta Kuzma, the former rector, who, by the way, was uh, elected and brought in with massive support from faculty and students. But it was also a moment of such support that the ones who were very critical against her just went under underground for a while. Um, but the, the kind of the, the starting salvo of this campaign came from in a way, uh, an inter- a non-profit organization, yes, but a private interest group. I mean, a group of people who had no business. Yeah, they were all former students of the school, and they had for several hundred years been the ones who decided who would become the director and who would... Could I ask you a question? Yes, please. So, Swedish art. Yes. Does it do well internationally? Not, not particularly. If you no. if you compare it to Swiss art, for example, another small country uh, with a, with a, a relatively high income and and relatively, let's say, socially at least relatively homogeneous population. I mean, the Swiss run circles around the Swedes. I think the Norwegians have been doing a lot better, and you could say, oh yeah, they got the money, but um, you got the they numbers. did better before they had the money. Too. No, I think, Pe- I mean, I think internationally, course, Ibsen is much more known than Steinberg. Munch. Sweden also didn't produce a Munch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, uh, if you look at Zorn and Munch, you kind of have a picture there. Yes, because Zorn is revered in Sweden, but not as much internationally, and Munch is revered in Norway and very much internationally. Yeah. Well, also, and not just that. Also, in terms of what they were doing. I mean, I don't know if it's a legitimate comparison, but I mean, the, the idea that the kind of, that one of the cornerstones, and you hear that from students and students' parents and so on, one of the cornerstones of Swedish painting is Zorn. And, you know, it's a kind of well done, tasteful, I think slightly kitschy, uh, uh, but, but and academic, most of all, it's academic, you know, it's so, whereas Munch was, of course, an, an avant-garde artist that, that found forms that were not at all... Um, tasteful at the time or agreeable and who, who was uh, trying to visualize things that might have been borderline unpicturable uh, and so 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 that kind of let's say drive and 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 striving you have there is not 
matched by... So uh, we brought in a new principle because yes. we wanted to make it a better art edu education, maybe more interesting, maybe give the students some drive and goal in life. Well, I mean, it, it's, it's even more than that. It's a, it's a government. It was a government directive. You know, I mean, the government has made it very clear through their high school or whatever policies, yes. And now I outed myself as a bad Swedish speaker. Those three sentences at the beginning, I rehearsed them for four weeks. Uh, so the government had made it very clear that they wanted um, the school to be, to move towards internationalization, professionalization, uh, stronger, stronger development of research, I mean, artistic research, And um, there was something else. And diversification. You know, really, I mean, the idea of broadened recruitment and a, and a more diverse and, in a way, more representative uh, academic community, was a, those were all priorities that the government uh, formulated. Because I, I don't know if this is true, but I heard that this is uh, the most expensive education per student in Sweden. Uh, I Doubt it. I think it's not. It's up there. It's definitely up there. And the the story I heard when I started there was there's one more expensive, one government education that's more expensive, and that's uh, to become um, a fighter pilot. But I don't think it's quite true anymore. I think there are other uh, uh, educations that are also quite expensive. The reason, of course, it's so expensive is um, real estate. You know, we in order to have an art school that has a emphasis on shops and tools and and fabrication and so on you need space and you need workshops and uh, if you decide to have that school on Hepsolman <laughs> you're, you're in trouble yeah so, so so it's one thing to say this is the most expensive education it's another thing to say like oh yeah the government is paying itself a lot of rent into its own pocket <laughs> you know from her school uh, I mean from from the educational budgets to uh, directly, which doesn't touch the school or the educational activity. So, so it's a little distorted. But it is true that it is a very expensive school, and it's still a school that has great resources. And, to, and that's where I think the whole thing becomes a little scandalous, that you look at what the school... If you, think, if you ask yourself, what could the school be doing, and what is it doing? That's where I think... Uh, some of what has happened was really irresponsible because uh, given the resources, this could be one of the top five schools in the world. There aren't that many schools left that have that luxury of staff, resources, free education, just simply that, simply that, that you can go So we should have, uh, like, we should uh, have bond, like the, an enormous amount of artistic talent You should have the, we should have the best people worldwide apply because now even in England they pay um, in the US anyway many other places uh, this this should be like northern Italy in the Renaissance you know <laughs> yes but it's not no no <laughs> no not even close it's a, it's it's a, it's a fine school you know but this is exactly so so they bring in a rector with this kind of mandate and You know, she's American. She has a different, uh, let's say, leadership style. And it steps on some toes and makes mistakes, undoubtedly. But I have also now seen three or four uh, directors at that school, and there was not a single one, no matter how beloved them they were, who didn't make 
quite some blunders and also cut corners and do things that could be interpreted as nepotism and so on. So, so in that way, uh, you know, there was fair criticism against her. But what happened then was simply a, a kind of campaign to smear her and people who supported her and to basically make it impossible for her to stay. And under those conditions, in spite of all that, enormous things were achi achieved in, in that one or one and a half years that she actually got to work there. I mean, it's not by coincidence that, that Angela Davis wants to come to that school and speak and says no to Söderdam and no to Stockholm's Universität and no to other, school, uh, other schools. It's also not by coincidence that uh, we have... Uh, a project or a collaboration with um, the Center for Modern European Philosophy at Kingston in, in London, uh, which is kind of one of the, at least for philosophy in the arts, one of, well, it's kind of the place to go. You know, suddenly they are willing to work with Mayan, and that attracts people on the level of PhD candidates and so on that we didn't attract before. Um, and so, so, so I think what these one and a half years showed is like you can get a lot out of what we have if you decide to dedicate it to getting a lot out of it. If you decide to get dedicating it, if you decide to dedicate it to having a, a nice workplace and you know bringing your friends in and and having fika uh, and and also generally just avoiding a real discussion on, on quality and re relevance and urgency, but have a kind of cozy situation where everybody gets to invent some courses and every, and there's no real uh, rigorous, um, even internal critique, then, of course, that money goes very fast and is very, it's nearly invisible. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you think about the simply... But the, she's unemployed now, uh, principal. I mean, she, she lost her job and... I'm guessing she'll never get a job again. You're, you're, you're bi you're I'm very, being sarcastic. Nice setup. Uh, yes. She was never fired, uh, but she went on her own account because in the middle of this campaign, which was very, very ugly, I mean, uglier than things I've seen even in the New York art world, um, in the middle of that, she got an offer to become the dean of the Yale University School of Art, which is probably the top job in the world, Uh, in which, that business, in 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 her field, yeah, yes, in her, uh, uh, which she took, which I can't blame her for. her for, but can't blame her for. <laughs> yeah, no, um, I mean, what is what is really interesting is that what in the end became a discussion of her leadership qualities and her lack of respect for for fuck it and 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 proper conduct in Sweden, which was probably justified criticism to some extent, it started out as an attack on basically foreigners. I mean, the first letter that came from Kunstakademien and went to not only the education department, but also the culture department, also many, many other places, and the press was literally using formulations as uh, foreign professors are not equipped to vada, to take care of Swedish national culture. Uh, Vårda. Vårda, tacka. Um, see, I'm yeah. not equipped. I yeah. am simply <laughs> not equipped. Well, we are equipped to teach art, but uh, maybe not speak Swedish. Yeah. 
So, 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 so the, 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 the initial discussion was actually hair-raisingly um, xenophobic. xenophobic, nationalist, and also, also really uh, dumb. I mean, it raised this kind of false dichotomy between... Uh, But wouldn't you say it's because they've had this thing for generations as their own little playhouse, and they haven't had to suffer for art and produce something relevant and urgent, as you say... And well, then suddenly, the stakes are raised. Well, it's it's yeah. I think one thing is that that there is um, that the school was always both a support structure and a place where you can take a, a, a little breather and teach a little bit, and a place of production for a lot of artists in the Stockholm art world. You'd be surprised how much uh, the school actually supports activities that have nothing to do with education or research. Uh, another thing is also simply that the person, one of the few individuals who really were very outspoken and, and authoring a lot of these attacks was uh, Don Volgers, who applied for Marta's job. Uh, so it's, it's even simpler than that. You know, it's like our guy didn't get it. Let's go after the one yeah. who got it. In, in such, it was so, so banal. It was very much about a, a local a power elite that wasn't going to take this Uh, lying down that was uh, behaving like high school students i don't know i mean it, it, it was silly there, there's a there's a, one can read a lot of these things um documented in a, in a in a kind of yearbook or publication that mayan did in the middle of all that the whole a lot of these letters back and forth between the academy and some press coverage which was just a i mean this is also i mean the swedish press in that situation proved to be so completely uninterested in journalism. I mean, there was there were there were so many situations where the press said, "Oh, nobody, people refuse to talk to us." I would call journalists and say, "Come, talk to us." The professor and and the majority, even a week before Marta took the other job, the seven out of nine fine arts professors wrote a letter in support of her. The majority of the students wrote a letter of support of her, but the press painted it as, as if. She was uh, alone against the entire school. And there was no way... I mean, I spoke to both art critics and other people and said, look, it's not like that. There was no interest in that. I mean, there, that was really when you realized, no, they have an idea about... I mean, and, and then you would have... Suddenly you'd have conversations with art writers about like, yeah, but isn't it wrong that everybody has to do research? You're like, but nobody has to do research. It's a very few people who do research at that school. So even the, the, the basic facts that are that you could look up with in two seconds on, on the website were not uh, admitted to the discussion. So it was really uh, shockingly um, vulgar just. I mean, that, that basically the press became this kind of uh, extended arm of, of an angry local elite. Well, you know, uh, Sweden prides itself on the ideal of lagom. You know the term lagom, right? Oh. We have lagom good artists, and we have lagom good journalists. Yeah, but I, I don't want to do the general Swede bashing. I mean, I, No, you don't have to. I'm doing it. I do, you're doing <laughs> that for me. Cause I think no, not for you. I'm doing it for me. <laughs> I'm do, you're doing it for them. <laughs> no, but look, I think, I think there's... Uh, I think there's amazing individuals here. There's just something about how culture organizes itself that is 
so incredibly efficient at breaking those amazing individuals down or marginalizing them or condemning them to silence. I mean, the, 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 if you're an outsider and you're angry and you're, you know, pissed as hell and do the least you kind of deserve is a decent debate. Then, Preach, like, brother. <laughs> but 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 here, I mean, I mean, I talked about this with Iris Smits earlier, and we we talked about who gets, how do people end up in institutional positions in Sweden, and we decided they end up in institutional positions by growing up, and growing up means that no matter how much of a troublemaker or or critic or cynic or party boy or party girl or punk you were. When you made a name for yourself, by the time they entrust you with something, you have to have turned into something like a local politician or a bureaucrat. And that's just, that's just how it works. Yes. And there are very, very few exceptions. And I mean, this is also, I mean, not to dwell on this conflict on Mayan, where I, of course, was involved and drabat and, and got very emotionally invested also in trying to protect this, the changes that the school was making, I think, rightfully. But this is something that goes, that's much, much wider than that. I mean, if those of you listeners who are really curious read up on the fate of the former director of Malmö Konstal, Diana Baldun, an Italian intellectual and curator and, and writer who was uh, very, very shortly after her, she took the job was basically bullied by the by the administrative staff and had a very hard time all the while she curated some shows that were incredibly important she's the first one to show Christoph Schlingensief in Scandinavia a show that i think had 60,000 or so visitors which is way above what the Kunsthalle usually gets nobody was interested in that She did an amazing Ad Reinhardt show of his cartoon drawings and his slideshows. Amazing show, very little press. Beautiful show of John Jonas, like one of the best installations I've ever seen. Hardly any press. But the fact that she was not a good Mündigheitschef or whatever, Museechef in, in that case, that was all over the press. And, and um, something quite similar has happened to the international... Uh, director of the art department at the Konzerskolen in Oslo, Vanessa Olraun, who was also left of, uh, is leaving on her own accord, just like Marta, to become the director of the Art Academy in Braunschweig in Germany. But it was a woman, very, very um, strong uh, work, like maniacal worker, somebody who really, really put that school on the map and reformed it and brought it sort of into a contemporary context. And it was basically kind of pushed out through, in this case, through administrators. Um, similar th rumblings I hear about Umeo, where they have, again, a Czech woman as the dean. So there is a history. And, and it's, it's, I think it's remarkable that these are foreigners and these are women. These are powerful intellectually do you think it has to do with them being women or do you think it has to do with someone coming into sweden saying mediocrity is not good enough well, i mean definitely with the latter but it also has to do i think i do think there's a gender aspect that it is i mean the the the, the i mean it's a little bit like if you, if you look at the whole 
discussion around Hillary Clinton right now, you realize the things she's accused of, in a male politician, they're considered tough or un unbendable or smart or you know, strategic. Yes. In, in a female politician, they become ba bad character traits. And, and much of how Marta was treated, how Diana was treated, if you look, just read, it, read the press and the kind of sexist undertone is really, is really hard to ignore. But do you think the same would be true if the Swedish woman held the job? Well, I have yet to... Uh, there aren't maybe that many Swedish women who really have an interest in having such a job and still rocking the boat. You know, no, 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 but that, I think, would never happen with the Swedes. I mean, I mean, because I they would never try to rock the boat. No, Swedes are fucking raised not to rock the boat. No, but there, of course there's exceptions. Uh, but if you look... You know there's a Swedish expression for that. Yeah. Sit still i botten. Oh, sit still i botten, no. Do you know where it comes from? Uh, Vikings. Oh, the Vikings. You couldn't oh, move Vikings around. You had, you had to keep your place. Otherwise, you would... Uh, throw uh, throw the boat out of balance. So the Swedes would have made great refugees. Well, there is a certain truth to uh, conformism, consensus-seeking no. Swedes, who like the meeting culture, as you call it, fika culture, as no. I call it, no. and uh, they want teams, and egalitarianism runs through it so deeply that it sort of defeats its own purpose. You never get something interesting out of this because everyone has to agree, so it can't be interesting. It always has to be the mean. Uh, here's an example. Um, because if they recruited me as a principal for the art school, I would start... <laughs> no, uh, no I'm, I'm, just, I'm just telling you, I would start beating the students daily oh. to make them suffer so they would become interesting people. I had because I was at the panel discussion for the dysfunctional comedy thing, yeah. right? And I, uh, I talked to a few students. Oh. And to be quite frank with you, and I, I spoke to Rowie as well, who yeah. was also part of it. Our impression is they have no goals. They don't know what... There's no real urgency in, in their creative process. Yeah, that I, that I, was I the mean, feeling I, mean, I got. Yeah. No, no, I, I think... Uh, I mean... I, if if people, guest artists come here from let's say the U.S. where there is a culture of harsh criticism, you know where it is where if you get a critique, the job of the critic is to throw throw you the hardest curveballs she or he can think of. Yes, because it makes you stronger in a sense. Yeah, or, or also it, it it pushes the discourse, it pushes the discussion, and that. Uh, it's just not something that's practiced here. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, it's interesting. When I, my first day teaching in Sweden was like this. There was, a, there was a kind of open critique, and I said I would come, but I came straight from the airport. I, had a, I was flying in from New York. I was delayed. I came straight from the airport, and then jet-lagged as fuck. I still stood there for seven hours doing a critique. And the interesting thing is that the, a colleague, another professor whom I barely met before, instead of saying, like, how are you doing? How was your trip? Um, did you, uh, wow, great that you could come or something like that, her comment was like, well, you're late. And, you know, for the students, this is really important. And you really shouldn't behave like you're any better than anybody else. And it's like, wow. This is, this is. Yeah, but also to not understand that uh, 
first day on the job flying in from New York, it's not about arrogance, it's about practicalities. It's about schedules and timetables and distances and things like that. To, 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 to not be able to step out of that or, or to, to basically have your resentment towards what is other so deeply ingrained that you can't even stop one, one moment. It's like, oh, this guy probably didn't sleep in, in you know, 20 hours and now he's doing an eight-hour critique. That's actually kind of okay. Okay, so that was experience number one. And the other experience was that I said what I would have said in a New York situation, in a, in a critique in New York. So I, I, I asked people and I said, if I, you know, some, some, this two artists had done this video where they were basically doing graffiti on the wall to music and it was cute and it was like stop motion and, and it was funny. And I basically said, like, I don't see where this connects with, art in any way i mean i see where this connects with music videos and so on but i don't see where it, where it connects with that and a conversation within the art world and i also don't see where it kind of refuses to be art so i, I basically said like look this isn't really a thing that computes for me which i think was a and um many years later one of these two artists who actually became a friend and 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 uh, also later said that she really appreciated uh, that came to appreciate the criticism, but she told me, I hated you for two years. For two years, I wouldn't look at you. I would sh change this, the, the side of the corridor if you came down there, and I hated you so much for... And I was like, but I just said what I thought. You know, I didn't say you're bad, you're evil. I just said, for me, this work doesn't work. Please explain. And that was already too much. Yes. They're not used to critique here. No. Hey, I need to pee. Can I do that? Yes, absolutely. Can I take the, the microphones there? <laughs> so, um, to wrap this up, yeah. um, Olav, where can I uh, persuade people to buy that book? Okay, we will have a... You asked when it's out. It's printed now. Online, it's already available through Sternberg, which is the publisher, German-based but international. They have it at Konstig on Södermalm. And we will have a book release event on November 17 at Goethe Institute, where Aaron will be there, maybe even performing. Hopefully. I will be. Uh, no, I will be performing. And uh, you booked Sandra as well. Sandra Ilar. Sandra Ilar will be performing. Also coming another funny Jew, uh, <laughs> Miriam Katz, who's a, both uh, an art forum critic and a performer and a comedian, will come from New York because she likes the book. And then uh, Iris Smets will play some music, some one-man punk band. Or music. her approximation of music. Yeah, it's yes. punk. <laughs> yeah. And I will be there, Olaf Westfalen, and uh, maybe some other people. So it'll be, a, it'll be an evening of both book release, so some people will probably try to speak seriously about some of the topics we talked about now, but there'll be definitely music and beverages and uh, some something rather festive, and we'll have the book there to sell. And other than that, uh, yeah, other than that, the easiest is, of course, online. Yes, you can buy the book online. And yeah. what's the web page? Oh, shit, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Let's look at this. So Sternberg is... They didn't put their website in. Oh, yeah. Via, 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 punkt Sternberg dash press dot com 
Sternberg, like Schönberg in German. But with a J or an I? S-T-E-R-N-B-E-R-G. And then a slash. A, a, a dash. A, a, oh, a dash. Press, yeah. Bindestreck. Bindestreck, yes. Sternberg Bindestreck Press dot com. And the official re- release is on the 17th of November at the Goethe Institute in Stockholm. I should also say that this is an art book. Uh, so uh, the entire edition is only 700 copies. Or 750 or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And if you listeners will uh, buy this book, then it'll probably sell out. And then it will become the first art book in the history of the world to ever sell out. <laughs> 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 yes, but it it may be gone soon. So if somebody's interested in discussions of of good and bad jokes and how bad jokes could be good art and good art can be a bad joke, <laughs> that would um, then it's a good thing to get. Yes, thank yeah. you for coming, Olaf. Sure, it's been a pleasure. Tack för att ni lyssnat på dekonstruktiv kritik. Köp boken Dysfunctional Comedy, den finns på nätet. Och om ni hinner höra det här avsnittet, kom till Göteinstitutet i Stockholm för att se panelsamtalet. Gå gärna in på Patreon och stötta podden. Och ni som redan gör det är välkomna att söka medlemskap i Facebookgruppen. Biljetter till mina framträdanden i Halmstad, Umeå, Uppsala, Jönköping och Eskilstuna hittar du om du söker efter Aron Flam på scen på Biletto. Tills nästa gång, må väl.
when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.